coming up on this week's podcast. Because when we pray, we need to remember a couple of things. We need to remember, first of all, that it's not about me. It's about him. Um, My relationship with God needs to be based on the reality. And the reality is that he is preeminent and I need to fit into his plan. I need to understand my total dependency on him and every single part of my life. And that's what we can pull away from what Jesus told us to pray. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Julie Coleman with today's message. This uh, cold weather reminds me of uh, an experience I had a long time ago, back when I was in college, back when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth. (laughs) And um, we had this wonderful family at the church that I attended when I was in college who took all the college students home for dinner every Sunday. And they'd bring us in, and they'd uh, give us a wonderful roast beef meal. She was a great cook, Mrs. Lemus. And we'd help with the dishes and peeled potatoes and just feel like we were part of the family for a day. And it was just a great thing when you're in college and stuck in a dorm room all week. It was just the highlight of our week. We had, uh, I started going by myself and ended up with a whole crowd of people that followed. And uh, poor Mrs. Lennis was up to about 20 when I graduated from college. <laughs> but she continued on for many years. It was a wonderful thing. Well, we, had, we would take turns driving because college students, we didn't have any gas money. So... But this one guy that used to drive, his name was Hutch, and he was kind of an interesting character. He was a volunteer fireman, and so his car was equipped for every emergency. And so he had a CB radio, and he had one of those siren things that you stick up on your roof, and all kinds of equipment and things. But the car had no heat. And so it was, it was a Volkswagen station wagon. I don't know what they would even call it now. But, but anyway, it had two doors and then this back seat uh, where all these wires and things were connected. Well, I was in the back seat, in the middle of the back seat of this two-door car, and he used to give us a blanket to put over us because it was so cold. In Massachusetts, I went to Gordon College. In Massachusetts, the weathers don't fool around. And so it was really, really cold, cold temperatures and all. And so we were driving in one January back to Gordon after being at dinner at the Lenises, and <clears throat> all of a sudden I felt this burning sensation on the back of my legs. I mean, really burning sensation. And I jumped a little bit. And when I did, smoke came pouring out from underneath this blanket. So, very calmly, I said, Stop the car! We're on fire! And so, Hutch screeched to a halt. And we all jumped out. And I ran over and sat down in the bank, the snow bank that was there. And my coat had actually caught on fire. What happened was, somehow, one of us had stepped on a wire and had short-circuited the wire. And so the insulation burned off, and my coat was, uh, was on that wire, and so my coat actually was on fire. It was, a, it was quite a traumatic thing for me. <laughs> but as we all sat there and everybody calmed down and discovered what it was and that we all weren't going to explode or anything, one of the boys looked over at me and said, Hey, Julie, how were you the first one out of the car? You were in the middle of the back seat of a two-door car. And everyone started to stare accusingly at me. And I sat there in the, the, the snow. I said, well, you know, I have no idea. I don't know. But that moment when I thought I was in flames, my priority was, number one, 
every man for himself. <laughs> well, it wasn't one of my better moments. I was raised better than that. <laughs> but the thing is, the disciples, if you, could, if you can imagine having that kind of a handicap, or say I was raised in a situation where it was always every man for himself, and so I would never have anything but that modeled in front of me. Um, I wouldn't know how to treat others with generosity or with kindness. I wouldn't know how to be in a marriage relationship because there's so much give and take with that. Um, And I wouldn't even know how to approach God if only I thought of every man for himself. Well, the disciples had that kind of a hardship in their lives because the religious leaders at that time were only modeling every man for himself. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of a historical background. The Pharisees were the religious leaders at the time when Jesus uh, called his disciples to follow him. And um, they had quite a history. Um, in the, the, God had taken the uh, Jewish people and exiled them away from their home as punishment for not having their hearts toward them. And so when he, they, he, they finally came back, they rebuilt the wall in Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, and began to populate the land once again, this group of Pharisees, they decided that the reason why, and, and rightfully so, the reason why God had exiled them to begin with was that they had not adhered to the law. They had not followed God, and so therefore God had punished them. So they decided that they better make sure that we really, really obey the law because otherwise we're going to experience God's punishment once again. So they started to develop these laws about the law. And if there, if there weren't enough, in Leviticus, I think it's 613 commandments, They invented commandments about the commandments so that you could implement the law in every single area of your life. And they ended up calling that the oral law. And they wrote it down into the book called the Mishnah, which is um, a record of all of those oral law. Well, then, as time went on in this 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, um, the Pharisees started to, and and Jewish people in general, still really started thinking about apocalyptic terms about when the Messiah was going to come again. And so the Pharisees um, decided that it, was only going, it wasn't going to be just normal historic events that were going to happen. Something supernatural was going to happen. And in order to have that happen, that it was the responsibility of a select group of Jews to prepare the way for that advent by intense obedience to the law. And the Pharisees decided they were it. And so they were going to obey the law no matter what to the letter Um, because they wanted to usher in the age of the Messiah. But unfortunately, the Pharisees had it all wrong in the way they're going to implement it. Paul puts it like this. He says, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it as faith, but as though it were by works. So the religious leaders made it about all about what you do and not about faith. All about us, not about God. Well, that's what was being modeled for the disciples about what it is to follow God, was that kind of an attitude. So what exactly what did the disciples get taught? Well, the first thing was that righteousness comes by following the letter of the law. Do everything exactly the law says, but it didn't extend beyond to their heart. An example, you know, it, 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 you will not murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. And so the, the Pharisees said, okay, we're going to follow that rule. But it didn't go to their hearts. So it was okay to slander people. It was okay to judge them. It was okay to curse them as long as you didn't physically murder them. So they took that law and just made it the letter of the law. The second thing they said is what counts is what other people see. 
And so they had walked around, if they were fasting, with this gloomy face that made sure everybody knew how miserable they were because they were fasting. If they prayed, they prayed out in the street corners. If they gave, trumpets would sound to announce their great giving thing. So all of these things were all about appearances and all about what people saw and not about what was in their hearts. And the third thing they modeled was, you're on your own for your spiritual reward because holiness is self-made. Well, you can see right now, and I'm sure they would not have put it like that, but that's exactly what they were modeling for the disciples. And so they, that's what the disciples had seen, every man for himself. But in order for Jesus to teach the disciples, to train them for the work he intended for them, to build the foundation of the church, he had to reorient them completely away from that mindset that the Pharisees had given them all those years. So he started in Matthew with the Sermon on the Mount. Because it's not about works, it's always about faith. And that's what he was going to get across to them. He wanted to give them a different mindset. So let's take a look a little bit at the Sermon on the Mount. These are just kind of the main points. There's lots of sub-points to it. But this is what Jesus said. He would say, you have heard it said. And then he would tell what either the law um, of God, in Moses' law, would say, or um, oral law. But I say to you, and then he would give a whole different approach, not of works, but of your heart. So the first one, you've heard it said that you should not commit murder. And we talked about this already. Everyone who's angry with his brother is guilty of murder. Then he said, said, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. Well, everyone that looks at a woman with lust in her heart, uh, with lust in his heart, has already committed adultery. Um, whoever sends his wife away, let him give a t- certificate of divorce. The Pharisees were big on finding a younger woman and divorcing their old wife and marrying the young one. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. <laughs> divorce, it's not a good thing. Everyone divorces life, makes her commit adultery. You should not make false vows. Jesus said, don't make an oath at all. Have integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to make a vow to prove that you're going to do something. Do it. People will believe you if you're a person of integrity, if it's already in your heart. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Mm -mm. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn off to the other also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Let it go. Penetrate to your heart. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy, you've heard it said. Well, I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He wanted the law to get past the do's and the don'ts and the rules and the letter of the law and get to the heart. That's what God is looking for in us. Well, that was going to continue on in how they learned how to pray. Because praying, again, had been modeled for them by these Pharisees, and Jesus wanted them to know that there was a different way that God was interested in. What had they seen? Well, they would see Pharisees with these long, wordy, spiritually languaged prayers, and uh, always with the audience in mind, and not so much about God. Um, it was, uh, and Jesus actually called those tactics hypocritical because he saw right through the fancy language and all of that to what was in their hearts. It was only done to be seen by man. Every man for himself. That's exactly what had been modeled. But it's not every man for himself. It's the exact opposite when it comes to prayer. And so Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer as an example of how effectively to pray to God with your heart and not just um, following the letter of the law. So he gave them the Lord's Prayer. This is what it says. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this prayer. Lord, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, give us spiritual eyes to understand what exactly was Jesus trying to get across to his disciples. We want our prayer life to be vibrant, Lord. We want it to be about you, not about us. So give us truth, Lord, as we go through this passage and help us today. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the first things you do after translating the Greek, this is how I was trained in seminary. First, you translate the Greek um, into English and find out all the verb tenses and what all that implicates and stuff like that. And then you do something called uh, a grammatical structure. And you take the passage and you put it in line with what goes with what and that kind of thing. So that's the first thing I did to figure out the Lord's Prayer. Um, Our Father who is in heaven, and look at the first three, stuck right out to me. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See that, your, your, your. And then it goes on to give us our daily bread this day and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So now you're seeing another pattern. It went from your, 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 your to us, 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 right? Um, and then goes back to yours. Because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Well, I thought I was pretty smart getting this thing together and uh, saw that I had this um, structure. And I was looking, what I was really looking for was a pattern, was a, a formula, was something to sink my teeth in when it came to prayer. You know, step, step A, step B, step C. And so that's what I was looking for. And some are have already been invented. Uh, here's one, Acts. You ever seen this one? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Ah, this one didn't fit that pattern. Okay, so I couldn't use that one. Then I tried joy. Have you heard that one? Jesus, others, yourself. No formula would fit the pattern. I couldn't even come up with one of my own when I was, but, but I was, I thought I was getting close because I was looking at us, 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 you, your, 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 us, 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 us. So I thought there's got to be something there. But what I was doing was I was looking for rules to follow on effective prayer exactly what Jesus was preaching against when he was doing the Sermon on the Mount. And this whole Lord's Prayer is part of his sermon, part of his instruction. So if I'm going to make up rules, I'm doing exactly opposite to what Jesus had intended to do. The Pharisees were following the rules, but it was dead wrong. So Jesus meant to get the disciples out of that mindset of following rules, following following that uh, formula. Instead, he was trying to give them a heart attitude that they were going to follow. And it had been like that since the beginning of God's relationship with his people. Back when they were about to enter the promised land, in Deuteronomy, this is what he he told them. Fear the Lord, walk in all his ways, and love him, and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. God was always after the people's hearts. Instead, they were trying to reduce it to a list of do's and don'ts. And so that's what Jesus was trying to give them. He wasn't giving them a list of do's and don'ts while praying. It's the opposite to what he was trying to get across. He was trying to impress on them the importance of a right heart before God. So if you take a look at the back of your bulletin, I actually have a little outline here you can fill in. Help you pay attention. There will be no test at the end. But there is um, several points that I think Jesus was making with his prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. The first point is this. A child of God approaches his father with a balance of trust and respect. Trust and respect. 
So the way we're going to do this is just go through this, phrase, this prayer, phrase by phrase, and maybe try to glean out what Jesus was trying to get across as he taught his disciples. Now, the first phrase, of course, is our Father who is in heaven. Okay? Now, in those days, not so much today, today we give out names, half the time I can't even tell if the name is a boy or a girl anymore, this new generation is coming up. Um, but, a lot of, but back then, when you were given a name, the name meant more than just, you know, hey you, something else to call you besides hey you. Instead, it was, it was about the substance of the person. The name and the quality that the name inferred went together, and it, it, it told about the person, right? It revealed something about their nature. So what does Jesus call God? Well, he calls him Father. Now, that was kind of a new concept for the disciples. There's a few places in Jewish literature where God is referred to as Father, a couple of times in the Old Testament. But Jesus, in the Gospels, Jesus is the only one who ever calls God Father. Now, of course, once Paul gets in the picture, he's using Abba Father also. But he's calling Jesus, uh, Jesus is calling God Father. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you think about a little child on, on earth here approaching his earthly father, what is their attitude? Well, they know he's really smart, right? I remember one time Steve picked the, uh, fixed the toy for my little Joseph. And Joseph started jumping up and down. He said, Daddy, you be a genius. <laughs> one of Steve's finer moments. But, you know, that, that whole idea of Daddy can do anything. Daddy's smart. Daddy's wise. And, and Daddy's strong. Daddy can do, he's such a strong guy. He can do all these great things. And you, you Think of that whole attitude as a child approaching your father. Well, that's what Jesus was doing, approaching his, the heavenly father. He was saying, acknowledge him as benevolent and kind and loving, and you can trust him because he's your dad, and you can trust your dad. And so that's the kind of thing he was getting. But he doesn't just say, our father. He says, our father who is in heaven. Well, that gives a whole nother connotation to who God is because he's talking about God here is that greatness of the one who's in charge and in heaven. He's not only a father who's willing to help us, he's a father who's able to help us. And he has that power and that ability to do great things. He wants to do good, and he has the ability to make it happen. So there's this balance here. Father, benevolent, kind, loving, in heaven, powerful, great, mighty. And there's a balance right there within that one title. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> That's what God, he said, he, Jesus was telling them, you can come to him with boldness like a child with a father and trust him, but you also need to come to him with reverence and understand exactly who he is and who you're invoking when you pray. Next phrase, hallowed be your name. Well, hallowed in, in the Greek is the same word that gets translated as holy, and also a lot of times, mostly it gets translated as sanctified. And it gives the idea of being set apart from the rest, to be dedicated to a certain purpose, and it conveys the idea of purity, free from sin, totally um, free from guilt of sin, and therefore, that's what, what God is, admitting all of those things about him just by saying, hallowed be your name. The next phrase, your kingdom come. A statement like this, it's kind of like joining your forces. You're saying, God, I want to see you bring about your reign on earth. Um, I want my hope for the future to be your purposes. Um, it's an expression of kind of a hopeful anticipation. Your kingdom come. And at the same time, it expresses our determination to live lives that are just totally focused toward his purposes. Um, it's an expression of kind of like a human partnership 
between God and us, saying, We're, well, I'm in with you. <laughs> I want what you want. Your kingdom come. And it also establishes a, what you call in seminary, a theocentric point of view. In other words, God being at the very center of, of uh, the world and the world revolving around him. And it kind of establishes that when we say, your kingdom come. And, of course, the rest of that phrase is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because things are already as it should be in heaven. Sin is not there. And so God's purposes are, are happening. Uh, God is being revered as holy. And things are going just like they should. And we're asking for a similar state of affairs here on earth when we say, your will be done. We're also saying, I don't want to displease you in anything that I do. And I don't want to be displeased with anything you do. I want to be in with you. <laughs> I want what you want. Okay, so that's the end of that first part, your, your, your. The focus is on God and on his purposes, his plans, and his glory. And now we come to the second part where, as I said before, I thought it seemed like things were going to switch. Let me get to this. Here it is. Um, things are going to switch, and it would be us, 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 all about us. Now, that's a part I can get into, can't you? And so I start looking and saying, okay, well, what, what, what is it talking about here? What is he doing? Well... Let's take a look at the very first phrase. We'll, we'll go back to you to the title. A child of God approaches his father acknowledging a total dependency on him. A total dependency on him. First phrase, give us this day our daily bread. It acknowledges that all good gifts are from God. In James 1.10 it says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Every good gift comes from the Father, right? And it's also a reminder in that phrase daily, some people translate it as day by day, but it has that kind of immediate connotation, not too far in the future. Daily, we rely on God's provision for our needs, for survival. Um, can't get much more basic than daily bread, <laughs> And that's exactly what Jesus said to pray for. Acknowledge that we have a continuing dependence on God. But that dependence goes beyond our physical needs, as you'll see in the next phrase. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now it's acknowledging God as holy in our sinfulness and understanding that we're also dependent on him for our spiritual needs. We depend on him for forgiveness of sins. Now, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now that, this one made me stop. <laughs> there were a couple of places where I got I ground to a halt in my studies, and this was one of them. Because forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, so is our forgiveness somehow dependent on how well we forgive other people? Well, that doesn't jive, because if you look at what forgiveness is in the rest of the Bible, it's talking about how our forgiveness comes through the blood of Christ. Our forgiveness comes because he took our guilt upon him. So how can our forgiveness depend on us forgiving other people? That, it just doesn't jive with what the rest of Scripture says. So what is it? Well, because if, 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 if my forgiveness is dependent on how well I forgive other people, I'm in really big trouble. I don't know about you. I can tell you for sure. Bad news. <laughs> so... Could it be that? Is that what Jesus is doing? I don't think so. And I don't think so, number one, because of what the rest of Scripture says. 
Number two, I don't think so, because what was Jesus getting after? Not about what you do, not about following the rules, not about do this, do this, do this. It was about your heart. So what is Jesus trying to get to about our hearts? Well, there's a guy named Butchuk, and I don't even know who he is, but I found this quote I thought was really good. <laughs> if anyone says, I'll never forgive you, that person is not penitently aware of his sins, but is only vengefully aware of another man's sins. We can't pray, uh, we can't not forgive people um, if you don't have any, we can't forgive people, we can't ask for forgiveness if we have no sense of our need for forgiveness. And therefore, if we have a sense of our need for forgiveness, forgiving other people isn't really going to be that much of an issue. Uh, he's, he wants us to have a life, live a life marked by the forgiveness of others. There's another, Leon Morris, one of the commentators I read, he says, he that relents toward his brother thereby shows that he repents toward his God. So I think what Jesus is speaking to here is a heart attitude, saying, yes, forgive me, you know, and, and forgive me, and, I, and I'm demonstrating how much I know I need forgiveness by my ability to forgive other people. But it's not a dependency clause. Next phrase, he says, is do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Another stop for Julie. I got stuck on this one, too. My husband and I had a long conversation while I was cooking dinner last night about it. <laughs> But it is another acknowledgement of a spiritual need, of spiritual dependency on the Lord, right? Um, the worshiper knows his own weakness about sin, and he's being prayed, praying to be kept far from anything that might bring him to sin. Well, I struggled with this phrase for a little bit. Do not lead us into temptation. Because in James 1, I think it's 13, it says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So how does that verse go with this verse? Do not lead us into temptation. Well, one thing Steve pointed out, which was kind of helpful to me, is that it doesn't say, don't tempt me. It says, don't lead me into temptation. Okay, so that's one little thing I want you to keep in your head. And he likened it to like a Boy Scout leader who might take Boy Scouts near a cliff bring them near this, you know, danger. But that's a whole different thing than standing the kid at the edge of the cliff and whispering in his ear, jump, jump, jump. <laughs> and I think that's the difference here. I think Jesus is saying, pray that God doesn't allow you to get near places where you're going to be tempted to sin rather than um, tempting us to sin. Um, because he doesn't directly tempt us to evil, but he does bring us moments of Testing, and that word testing and temptation, it's all the same Greek word. It's just the context and how it's used. Um, they call it testing when the person is succeeding and not going into sin. Temptation when the person fails <laughs> and ends up sinning. Peter's denial kind of uh, gives us a picture of this kind of thing that Jesus is telling us to ask about. Peter was in a situation, and Jesus told him, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And so... It was definitely, you know, this, this situation was going to come up, and Peter was in a place where he was, his life would be in danger if he admitted his allegiance to the Lord, and so he denied the Lord. And that was the kind of situation um, where that temptation was there to sin, and he got it. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. That's the kind of situation you want to pray that the Lord protects you from, 
Don't, put, don't allow me to go to a place where I'm going to be tempted to sin and fall off the track. I really think that's what Jesus is saying here. So, in short, we're acknowledging our weakness, our propensity to sin, and we're asking God's power to help us avoid the situations where this would be the problem. Because later Jesus prayed and told his disciples in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so they want to be with God and have him keep them away from those things. Kind of a negative, positive spin on the same thing. The first part is don't lead us into temptation. That's don't leave us to ourselves. We're weak. We're going we're to run into trouble. And then the positive side, deliver us from evil, is asking for God's protection from those evil things. Um, the world and its corruption, lust, death, sin, deliver us from ourselves, basically, <laughs> from our own evil hearts, deliver us from evil men, and uh, that we might not be a prey to them. And the last phrase. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And I have to tell you, most, uh, almost or all of the earliest manuscripts do not include this phrase in. It was added in later on. But it's kind of an interesting phrase. It's not even in um, the Luke version of the Lord's Prayer. But um, it's interesting because when you look at the way that this last phrase is, it really kind of mimics the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Um, your kingdom come matches up with, for yours is the kingdom. Your will be done matches up, for yours is the power. Hallowed be your name, for yours is the glory. So it's almost kind of like a repetition of the beginning addresses that he gives to God down at the end. So um, whether it's supposed to be in there or not, it's, it's interesting to look at. Okay, so now we kind of see where the Lord was going with this Lord's Prayer. So what? <laughs> How would, should what Jesus taught his disciples affect me and my prayers to God? And this is the, the part that uh, is the application part of the thing. Because when we pray, we need to remember a couple of things. We need to remember, first of all, that it's not about me. It's about him. Um, my relationship with God needs to be based on the reality. And the reality is that he is preeminent. And I need to fit into his plan. I need to understand my total dependency on him and every single part of my life. And that's what we can pull away from what Jesus told us to pray that we need to remember. It's not about me, it's about him. Secondly, we need to keep a proper balance in our understanding of him. Remember we talked about the Father in heaven and how those two parts of who God is need to be in balance when we're addressing him and approaching him. He's our Father, he's the power of the heaven. I need to love and trust him. At the same time, I need to respect the power and the greatness that is who he is. Um, which is a good thing to know because a lot of us, and I have to admit, I'm one of them, <laughs> We treat God like a genie in the bottle sometimes. We say, okay, good, God, you're here. Okay, I got some things I got, I got you to do for me. And we start listing off our requests, blah, 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 like a letter to Santa Claus, all the things that we want him to do for us. But instead of having that kind of a mindset, we need to filter those things. And I'm not saying it's bad to pray for things. It's wonderful to pray for things. We're supposed to pray for things. But we need to filter it through that idea of is this what God's will is? Is this what God desires? And really one of the best things is, will he be given glory if what I'm asking comes to pass? That's a good litmus test to give to our prayers. Um, I had that taught to me back a few years ago. Um, I was considering leaving teaching school. I was a fifth grade teacher. I taught Annapolis Area Christian School for 12 years. Um, in the fifth grade, I I'd taught many years before that, and I made a career being a teacher. But it felt like I was being pulled toward becoming a speaker for women and doing some writing. And, and so I, I 
but it seemed so foreign to what I had always thought I was going to be. I was going to be a teacher, and that was that. And, you know, there was no, there was no plan B. <laughs> it was just plan A, and plan A was going very well, thank you. And so I had all of these ideas, and, but I kept, my heart kept getting pulled toward this thing. Um, and so I ended up thinking about, well, maybe I had been given a couple of opportunities to speak at retreats for like big churches, like normal people don't get that. And I kept thinking, Lord, you're doing this. Are you trying to tell me something? You know, and then I talked to a lady named Carolyn Custis James, who's a, um, an author, I took her out to lunch to interview her for something I was doing. And I, and she told me all about seminary and how, you know, she really learned how to go deep because she really, her writings are very deep, very profound for me. Her book was a life changer for me. And so I started thinking about seminary and thinking about, and I thought, I want this so much. So therefore, it just cannot be God's will. Because if I want it that bad, it can't happen. And so I was talking to my friend Beth, who's sitting back there. And I was telling Beth, I really think, I, I, I really want this. But I, I just, I can't, I can't believe that it would be God's will for me. And she's like, well, why not? And I said, because I want it too badly. And she said, Julie, can God be glorified if you do what you're setting out, if you want what you want to do? I started thinking about, well, why do I want to be a speaker? Why do I want to be a writer? Well, I want to because I'm seeing so much fluff out there that women write and say in front of women that it just makes me nuts. And I want somebody to go in there and preach something decent and something, some neat to people. That's what I want. And um, she said, well, can God be glorified through that? Well, yeah, absolutely. And all of a sudden, it kind of made my decision for me. It's okay to want this. It's okay to pray for this because that God can be glorified through this. And he wants to be glorified. It's, it's his purpose. And so, therefore, I felt free to pray it. By the way, it came true. <laughs> I did finish seminary, and I did go out. I am writing and speaking full-time, so there you go. The third thing, the last thing that I want to come away from the Lord's Prayer is this, that we need to remember to be more concerned with our heart towards God rather than just following the rules to an admirable prayer life. Now, I was raised in Christianity. I know all about prayer journals, prayer lists where you have a column for the date you asked and another column for the date God um, fulfilled that request. Formulas, acts, um, the other one that I use, both of those things, all those things, those were, you know, those were steps. If you're going to pray, you have to pray the right way. But that's not what Jesus was getting at here. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. Don't get me wrong. If that's effective for you, that's great. But if my prayer life becomes more about that, about fulfilling these rules and these requirements, then a catalyst to a more intimate and fulfilling relationship with God, I'm barking up the wrong tree. So these three things are things we can take away that uh, help us to, re to remember what the Lord was trying to get with the Lord's Prayer. So in conclusion, there are no techniques in a good conversation with God. But what Jesus modeled for us was a way of coming to God that delights him and changes us. That's what he was after. His goal was for us to be brought into union with God in our hearts and desires. So it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives through us. That's what the Lord's Prayer, I believe, was all about. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching, focused on the Jewish roots of the faith, and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. Yeah,